and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Norm Robillard is the founder of the Digestive Health Institute. He is a strong advocate of drug and antibiotic-free dietary and integrative, integrative solutions for functional gastrointestinal disorders and various forms of gut dysbiosis. He turned his own suffering from GERD and IBS into a mission to create the drug and antibiotic-free fast-track diet that helps with acid reflux, LPR, IBS, as well as SIBO and other related health conditions. He created the Fast Track Diet to give gastroenterologists a science-based treatment option for SIBO and other related conditions. His award-winning app, Fast Track Diet, and his Fast Track Digestion book series make it easy to try the Fast Track Diet. Dr. Norm, it's an honor to welcome you to the show. Hey, Casey, thank you for having me. Honor to be there. It's an honor to host you. I was telling you right before this that the intro um, for you had a lot of really big words that I was going to stumble through, and I certainly did, so (laughs) (laughs) sorry about that. All right, I'll try to tone those down in the future. (laughs) Perfect. PI issues, let's just say that. Exactly, there you go. No, it just comes from being a really smart dude and spending a lot of time in this field. I'm super curious to talk to you today and to be able to learn from you. Before we deep dive, I was talking a little bit with your assistant. It sounds like you are quite the problem solver and quite the uh, builder with all of your hobbies that you have at home. You've got a lot (laughs) going on. Uh, You know, it keeps me from being bored. You know, rip up a bathroom, fix a car exhaust system, whatever it takes, I'm there. It's a lot of fun. And gardening. Gardening and composting, I really love. I mean, none of those are very small things. Those are pretty wide and and diverse um, things. Tell us about the bathroom. Well, the bathroom was, I live in a house that was built in 1930, and we had remodeled the kitchen and the living room. And we did some, you know, a lot of work on the house and the doors. And, you know, it was looking pretty good, but the old half bath on the bottom floor was still <laughs> pretty bad it was it was old it had wallpaper on it when i pulled it off the wallpaper the wall was just atrocious so i had to learn skim coating first and then i ripped up the floor but one layer led to another layer and cement and you know some wire mesh and mortar and so that by the time i get done you could see the cellar and just the floor joists wow. so, I, so anyway while i was at it i made a proper bathroom that's amazing and you just taught yourself how to do it all uh, luckily I have a brother who's a real skilled builder out in California and I've had a chance to work, uh, with him on some projects when I lived in California. So he taught me an awful lot. In fact, I still call him up if I have some trouble about how I'm going to snake a wire through or whatever. He'll, mm. wow. he's, uh, he's a resource. That's great. What's his number? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he won't uh, let me give it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine, man. So this is such an interesting topic. Um, and over the years of you know doing nutrition coaching and working with my clients, I just I didn't really appreciate how pervasive and ubiquitous this the types of, of like digestive issues are. I mean, it seems like they're everywhere, and it's not a problem that seems to be going away anytime soon. It seems just like more and more people are experiencing them. So before we deep dive into some of those topics, I would really love to know your personal story, what you were experiencing, and things you've learned along the way. Sure. Um, yes. And, and you know, I, I'm trained in microbiology. That was my field. And I, I worked on some gut microbes, um, but my thesis was on anthrax, so kind of infectious disease. I uh, worked on Bacteroides fragilis as a postdoctoral fellow, and that's a real um, big uh, gut microbe these days. But at the time, again, we were worried about infections and what, how to treat them. We, we were thinking about how to kill these bugs. Um, so this is different. You know, the digestive health with 
with 100 trillion microbes in our gut and living in this fine balance and how good they are for us, it, you know, it's a different spin on things. So initially, I wasn't really in that area at all. I was I joined um, a pharma company and I worked in biotech and pharma for over 20 years. Um, but along the way, I developed my own kind of terrible case of chronic acid reflux. Uh, aspiration reflux at night, a lot of heartburn, some IBS symptoms. Uh, it was it was affecting me. It was impacting my my job and my life. Um, and honestly, I probably wouldn't have known what to do about it, except I just happened to go on a low carbohydrate diet with my son. Um, he wanted me to get a treadmill and lose a few pounds, and and so we would decided to do that. But before any weight loss. I realized my digestive problems um, essentially resolved as long as I really watched these carbohydrates. So that was the first inkling for me that diet was important for this issue, at least at the time, this, this reflux issue. And of course, I learned later IBS and all these other functional GI issues have those uh, dimensions too and, and are impacted by, by diet. So, um, but I got curious about why why I felt better. Um, it didn't seem to go uh, um, along the same lines as the current understanding in the scientific literature about reflux. And they were talking about dysfunctional lower esophageal sphincter functions. Um, and, and the sphincter was either getting weak or relaxing, you know, and, and it just didn't make sense with the, hey, wait a minute, I'm taking out the carbs and I feel better. How's that go along with the story? So to make a long story short, I started doing some research, came up with a new theory of the underlying cause of acid reflux. It was based on carbohydrate malabsorption, um, coupled with overgrowths of microbes in the gut that produce a lot of gas. I knew that from my background in microbiology and that I reasoned this gas pressure was building up in the intestines and translating into the stomach. And the intergastric pressure was driving the reflux you know, with the analogy of, of squeezing a balloon or dropping a Mentos in a bottle of Coke. It was that simple. Well, it turns out there was a lot of evidence for this way of looking at it. So I've written a couple of books and, um, you know, I tried to do both for a while, tried to do my job and, and write some books and it, it didn't work out. I think my performance at work at the real job was suffering. So I finally <laughs> just switched field and, fields and went into digestive health. So I've been studying this for about 17 years now. Wow, that's amazing. So it's so ironic too that you were a microbiologist and and you get to study the biology of the human gut and microbes just in a different way. That's so cool. Um, I know I've, I've managed to stay in the field the whole time, which has been been lucky. That's amazing. I love that. So you're describing all of these different you know terms, different diseases, different things that can go awry in the gut. Are they all? Are they all related? Are they all kind of the same thing that we just give different names to? Uh, how are all those things different and how are they all similar? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think for the first kind of part of your question, there are a lot of different conditions that have to do with various forms of imbalance in the gut or dysbiosis. Um, I talked about acid reflux. I talked about IBS. Uh, but there's also a whole variety of autoimmune conditions linked to leaky gut, which has a, uh, a gut microbe connection, rosacea, uh, both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, uh, hypothyroidism, um, liver diseases, pancreas issues, celiac, Sjogren's, just a whole long list of things. Um, even people that have various surgeries or scarring in their intestines, um, 
and so there's there's many different conditions, and that also gets at your question about why wow, this is pretty common, right? Because if you add up the incidence of those different conditions, and I I mentioned maybe two thirds of them, um, there's a lot more, um, but just acid reflux, sixty million people, IBS, fifty million people. Now there's overlap between some of these, but you and add up all the immune um, uh, diseases, you know, fifty million. So it does impact a huge portion of the U.S. and, and world population. So, you know, what, what is tying these together? I think that's the, kind of the second part of your question. You know, what, why these seemingly, some of these seemingly diverse conditions? And if, you know, I spend a lot of time when I work with clients on, on underlying causes. What, what's driving their case, right? And it turns out that most of them, and, and again, there's many, many, you know, but most of them, I've kind of placed them in some buckets. And I think that really helps in, in thinking about the underlying causes. And that is anything that impacts, negatively impacts the microbiome, negatively impacts digestion, negatively impacts motility, how food partially and fully digested food moves through your digestive tract, and also things that impact immunity. And so when you start thinking about some of those, um, you know, gastrointestinal infections can trigger um, IBS and SIBO. And what is what can that do? Well, it's it, it can trigger an autoimmune reaction against Viculin, a protein that controls the nerves that modulate motility in the gut. Um, hypothyroidism, especially if it's autoimmune hypothyroidism like Hashimoto's. Many people with autoimmune conditions have other autoimmune conditions. So they may have pernicious anemia, in which case your body makes antibodies against your parietal cells that produce stomach acid. And the next thing you know, you have hypochlorhydria, a low stomach acid. Um, so that's just a sprinkling of, of this complex area of underlying causes and how it ties in to these many different conditions that are linked. Mm. So what is it inherently about carbohydrates in particular that can exacerbate or cause some of these problems? Mm. Yeah, great question. And that gets to one of those areas where, that I mentioned, right? Digestion. And when it first, when I first realized that low carb dieting helped me with my GERD, I just couldn't understand it at first. And I was thinking, why? Why would that be? And so I did some research on let me just follow the three food groups through digestion, fats, proteins, and carbs. There's only three of them, right? How complicated can that be? But, and, and proteins and fats, some microbes can use those for energy, but not nearly as many, and they can't get as much energy out of it, especially early in the digestive tract. But carbohydrates are completely different. A lot of these bacteria, it's their preferred fuel source. They can break these carbohydrates down very quickly and grow and use them for energy, but also many of them produce a lot of gas, hydrogen, methane, and in some cases, hydrogen sulfide. So those were the gases I was talking about, probably mostly hydrogen driving reflux in my case. Um, but why digestion, right? So I reasoned that, the, that my problem was either I was consuming way too many carbs, more than I could digest. That's why so many of them were feeding the microbes or that my digestion was off 
And so I was not fully breaking down all of these carbohydrates and absorbing them into my bloodstream. And so more of them were persisting, again, overfeeding these microbes. And the answer is probably, for most people, including myself, some combination of both of those things. Mm. Um, And just to, I guess, put the candles on the cake on that one. Um, It is known that, that people with functional GI issues can have problems with their pancreatic enzymes. You know, and, and so there's amylase, protease, and lipase, but especially amylase, which breaks down starches, right? And so you can take supplements for that, right? But there's also um, a population of people with these disorders that their brush border enzymes, these disaccharidases that are that stick out of the ends of the little microvilli in your small intestine. We, we think of those as, oh, they're used to break down disaccharides. So maltose, sucrose, lactose, right? Lactase is, is a brush border enzyme. And, but we, we oftentimes forget that these brush border enzymes are also required for the final breakdown of starch, starches. The amylase enzymes in your saliva and from your pancreas they, they break starch, these long, complex polymers of starch. You know, they can be thousands of glucose units long. They break them down, nibble away, nibble away, break them down. But at the very end, you're left with two and three sugar carbohydrates that cannot get absorbed out of the digestion into your bloodstream unless the brush border enzymes, uh, sucrase, isomaltase in particular, some of the other ones in some cases, complete the breakdown of starch. So a lot of people with a starch intolerance, they may never even think of it. Oh, brush border enzymes. I didn't, and, and it's not that easy to test for. Highly specialized lab. You need to, to have an invasive sample, kind of like a celiac test with endoscopy and take a tissue sample. So it's not, it's not quite as easy as some of the other diagnostics. So I think it goes unnoticed. But um, yeah, and stomach acid, we, we mentioned hypochlorhydria, right? You can get that from H. pylori, the autoimmune condition I talked about, from taking too many NSAIDs, from alcohol abuse. And so if you have low stomach acid, not only will you not absorb a variety of vitamins and minerals and other nutrients well, you won't be protected against pathogens entering your digestive tract. You won't be, you won't be able to protect your lungs from microbes in your own gut refluxing to your lungs. So stomach acid is important in those basic ways, but also it's very involved in the beginning process and the regulation of digestion. Mm. So people with low stomach acid can have digestive problems as well. Mm, So there's some examples. Yeah, that's so interesting. One of the things I would do when people would ask me about carbohydrates is I would I would very oversimplify that you know this fifty thousand foot view, but just say that with carbohydrates, there's maybe like three different kinds that you can be thinking about. You can think about carbohydrates as like a sugar. You can think of it as a starch, or you can think of it as a fiber. How does our digestive tract handle each of those things? Again, a very gross oversimplification, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we handle those things. Yeah, you're right. And they are different. So in the fast track digestion books and the fast track diet app and in my consultation program, I do kind of single out some of the worst culprits. Um, So in those uh, fructose, lactose, resistant starch, fiber, and there's many different types of fiber and resistant starch, which is like a fiber. And so at the very beginning, I'll usually put people on a diet that really puts restrictions across the board on those until we really know more about what's going on. 
um, because their digestion is different. Like lactose, you need one simple enzyme called lactase. It's that brush border enzyme. Um, people from Northern European countries and some other parts of the world, they, their gene is stuck on. And so they make lactase as adults. And lactose is a simple two sugar molecule. You just cut it in the middle with lactase and you can fully absorb it. So people can take a lactase supplement and the people that produce lactase as adults, see most people, they, they lose the ability to produce it after weaning, right? It, they, mm-hmm. Infants have it, but after weaning, they lose it. Um, that will help with the lactose if you take a supplement or if your gene's stuck in the on position. So that's a simple one, right? Um, and so there's ways around that. Um, but, uh, and glucose, it, we don't necessarily limit that because glucose is the body's preferred energy source. And so when things are broken down fully to glucose, the body spends energy, ATP, and this GLUT5 transporter to whip that glucose into the bloodstream very quickly. And that's why the elemental diets either use glucose or maltodextrin that's quickly broken down to glucose uh, because it's not a problem for the microbes because it's gone so quickly in the early part of the small intestine. But fructose, even though it's a sugar, a lot like glucose, but it's uh, different enough in its structure. It's also a monosaccharide like glucose, single sugar, but it uses a different way of transporting from the lumen of the digestive tract into the bloodstream uh, called like GLUT2 transporter. And it trans, it's transported by passive diffusion. So it just kind of drifts out of the gut. So you can imagine, it's not surprising that well over half the world's population has some level of fructose malabsorption. Um, fibers, they're not digested and absorbed by humans. So right there, you know, all of the fibers are proceeding on in the small intestine and into the large intestine, because by definition, we don't digest them. It's the same with resistant starch. Um, And so, oh, and sugar sugar alcohols are the other one. Um, They're poorly uh, digested, and so they also tend to present themselves to the microbes. And you can get a lot of gas and bloating and symptoms from sugar alcohols. And if you have any question about that, just go to the FDA site and look up sorbitol and some of these sugar alcohols. Oh, my God. Um, I just I remember a time in my life when I was eating Quest bars all day, every day to power me through. Dude, my mm-hmm. oh, my God, my stomach would kill me and I'd have the worst gas. And I had no idea that was part of the problem. (laughs) It's crazy. Oh yeah. Now, by the way, there is one friendly sugar alcohol and it's called erythritol. And because the microbes can't use it, our body doesn't use it very well. And so it's mostly excreted intact. Um, It's natural. It's made by fungi. It's present in a lot of uh, fruits and and vegetables as well. Um, But erythritol is a sweetener I use a lot. Um, some people say it gives them a little nausea or they have a few symptoms from it, but, um, overall the studies show it's, uh, uh, quite safe and quite unlikely to provoke significant, um, symptoms. Mm, and it's good. Show. It's a good sweetener. Huh? Interesting. So you mentioned fiber. This is one, I mean, I could talk about this for hours. Could you, could you tell us, <laughs> could you tell us about the different types of fiber and how they act inside the body? Sure. Well, you know, it's inside the gut, right? Because we don't digest and absorb them, uh, but the microbes can ferment them and produce short chain fatty acids, which is one way those fats nourish us. So it, uh, so some fiber and other roughage and, and some of these other uh, slowly fermentable carbs that I talked about 
when bacteria ferment them, they produce a lot of these short chain fatty acids and they're, they're fats. We can use them for energy. So there's a survival advantage for having these microbes in our gut that process fiber, resistant starch, and other um, carbohydrates we mentioned, as well as some level of proteins and fats. So they're recouping energy and we're basically splitting that energy with the microbes. They use about half of it for their own needs. And we get the other half back in fats that we can metabolize. In fact, if we have time, if we move fast enough, we can talk about a performance uh, probiotic that you might find interesting that, that kind of builds Great. on some of these issues. Um, but anyway, there's many different types of fiber. So cellulose is a long complex one that's less fermentable than some of the other ones. And it depends again on the microbes in your gut, but probably one that wouldn't, you know, it's in green leafy plants and you can eat a good bit of that without too many problems, but other fibers are shorter molecules are easier to ferment for microbes. So like for instance, with legumes and beans, right? They have stachyos, raffinose and verbiscose. Those are short polymers of sugar, but we don't digest them, but the microbes can use them pretty well. And that's why you always hear about the beans and legumes and a lot of gas and wind. But um, also you can have more significant symptoms if you consume too many of these fibers. Um, and, and there's other ones as well. Now, a couple of general thoughts on, on fiber. Just, uh, I gave a, a lecture out in Seattle a couple of years ago, and I tried to debunk some, some fiber myths because it's, they still linger, even though studies have shown uh, a, a lot of these things were, you know, were, were myths. Um, it doesn't help with constipation. Um, it, you know, if you want to say, okay, prune juice, you drink a bunch of prune juice, you might go, yeah, but you also might be miserable. So it's like, at what cost? But for the most part, and this was shown in a study by Ho in 2012, whole bunch of uh, people, good number of people in this study with idiopathic constipation, the ones that ate the most fiber were the most constipated. And the ones that ate no fiber were the ones that ended up going almost every day on average. <laughs> so it's not, it doesn't help with constipation. It won't prevent colon cancer. It's not required for our microbiome, despite what a lot of people want to believe based on observational and, observational and mouse studies. Um, and there is a lot of non-fiber fermentable material. We, we started to touch on that a little bit, all of these other types of carbs. And if you want to make it simple, you know, I, can, I could do the calculation with, with this fermentation potential formula that I developed that underlies the fast-track diet. And I could show you that on the Western diet, people don't have the 14 grams of fiber that they say we, uh, fermentable material that they say we get from fiber, daily fiber in the West, 14 grams, right? And they say it should be 28 grams. But on the typical day on a Western diet, you're getting more like 150 grams of fermentable material. And my point is, um, that's too much. And if, and if you don't want to even use this FP calculation, you can just look at it another way. If you take, if you add up, and in, in, in the Fast Track Diet mobile app, we have these tables with these foods, we have about I don't know, almost 1,200 foods listed, including a couple hundred vegetables. And if you look at the glycemic index of all the vegetables and you, you take an average, the average glycemic index of vegetables is 55. Wow. What that means is that 45% of the carbs in the vegetables you consume are being digested and absorbed more slowly than glucose. So that's why, I, that's why I named this term fermentation potential, FP, because it's not saying they absolutely will be fermented by bacteria, but if they, if they get absorbed slower than glucose, 
they'll persist in the intestines and there'll be the opportunity for them to be fermented with gas and these symptoms we talked about. Wow. So what I, I see animals all the time that look like they're eating a lot of grass and fiber and roughage. Like you said, how is that different for them than it is for us? Like if I ride my bike to my client's house and pass the little cow pasture and see the cows out there, they're eating fiber, lots of it. It seems like they're doing okay with it. How is that different from us? Yeah. I mean, they are really well adapted that, right? With the, the you know, I, I'm not an expert on the physiology of cows, but I knew, I know they have, their stomachs are these big fermentation chambers and they take the, the grass and they ferment the hell out of it. And these bacteria in their gut, just like in ours, make, uh, and of course they can even uh, digest some of the carbs. We can't, some of the, you know, the more cellulitic type carbs. They, the bacteria break them down, they produce the fats. And so the cows are eating carbs, but their, their, their nutrition comes from fats that the bacteria make. And you don't even have to look towards ruminants if you want to see um, uh, animals that, that have better capabilities to ferment carbs than we do. Just look at um, uh, the apes and the chimpanzees. Their stomachs are set up different. Their intestines are longer. They do. They are capable of having more extensive fermentation than we are. And again, there's more of a reliance on the fermentation end products, whereas we've evolved with a shorter digestive tract. But our own, uh, and, and of course, where uh, some people would argue with me, but you know, a lot of people in the ancestral health circles really believe that we sustained ourselves and we evolved to. Um, to depend more on animals for the bulk of our nutrition. Um, but we're capable of digesting those things ourselves without as much help from the microbes. But they still participate, as I mentioned, in um, getting some energy from protein. They can ferment a number of amino acids that make up proteins. And there's some bacteria that even know a really complicated trick to get energy out of fats. That's tough in an anaerobic environment because typically fat, fat breakdown metabolism is called um, beta oxidation. So you need oxygen. But these microbes have been able to couple anaerobic respiration with this beta oxidation to get energy from fats. But it's still a low energy yield. And that's why, again, in my books and my programs, I say you can eat more fat. You can eat more protein. Uh, there is some activity there, but it's not going to be nearly as challenging as if you if your digestion is off and you're consuming way too many carbs. And, and while we're at it, why don't we just stick this in? Um, you know, I, I work with vegetarians and occasionally a vegan, <laughs> not, not that often, but occasionally. Um, it is important for them to know the FP of these plants and these carbs, because if they have a lot of symptoms, it might matter. Now, there are vegetarians that can process a whole bunch of plant material without symptoms and even being healthy in terms of blood fats and, and so forth and cardiovascular health. Uh, I'm not saying you can't, but I'm saying that eating a lot of plants requires a very um, close collaboration between your own digestion and the microbes in your gut. Mm. And if you don't have that, you are going to have a lot of symptoms on a plant-based diet. Wow. That is so well explained. I'm so glad you made the point about the animals who look like they're eating a high carbohydrate diet when technically the bacteria are eating a high carbohydrate diet, but the, the animals themselves are running on fat just the way that we should be. That's such an interesting 
point. And it's funny too, like it's, it's not a knock on anybody who does a, you know, plant-based diet, but it's, it's easy to spot. Like you can just kind of see you know, the way people look like it, it tends to look like they have kind of like a fermentation chamber. It, it looks a little bit bloated and yeah, it's, it's, it's not that you can't do it. I love that point, but you should be really cautious and be really aware and be really willing to ask yourself some tough questions about whether that's the best thing for you. Yeah. And a lot of times when I work with vegetarians, I will ask some questions right up front to just see how flexible they are. You know, would you be willing to eat some fish, some eggs, some aged cheddar cheese and things like that? Um, because that can, those things can all help. Um, but otherwise you need to really just focus on optimizing digestion. Um, and, and you can do that. Yeah. But no. um, more challenging than if you can have some animal based foods in your diet. Sure. That's great. I love that approach. It's not that you're wrong and you have to change everything about your diet. It's just working with them and see what they're willing to do. I love that approach. Mm -hmm. um, so if we if we reduce or even eliminate fiber from the diet, what will be the food for the microbes in our digestive system? Mm. Yeah, and and there was uh, you know a lot of controversy about that. Um, and, and like I said, some of those studies on the importance of fiber and, and the thought that we're starving our gut microbes came from observational studies and mouse studies, but they just haven't borne themselves out. In fact, you don't have to look far. You can look at other, again, using the other animals for an example, there's some studies on the uh, microbiome of the cheetah, right? A strict carnivore. And their microbiome is very diverse and they have a full microbiome. And uh, there's been some studies on uh, looking at healthy people um, in one case on obese subjects, another one healthy people. Uh, Turnbaugh did a paper in 2014 where he put people, this was healthy people, for one week on just a completely plant-based diet or an animal-based diet. And it wasn't, it was an animal-based ketogenic diet, but it really wasn't one you would probably recommend to people you work with, but it was just meat and sausage and cheese and eggs and cream. Um, and then he looked at, they looked at the microbiome. And uh, first of all, I found there wasn't a drop in diversity. So, um, and that's been found in other studies, even when they looked at the uh, Inuit people, one eating the kind of modern day diet and one eating the traditional Inuit diet, also didn't see a big difference in diversity. So it looks like these microbes, they do shift. And this Turnbaugh paper in 2014 did show that shift. There's a shift in the microbe populations, but not necessarily less diverse. And there's a shift in the short chain fatty acid end products. But again, it's not that the plant base has all of the short chain fatty acids and the, the butyrate and the propionate and the you know uh, acetate and so forth. Um, and then the animal based diet doesn't have any. No. In fact, the animal based diet has, there's a little bit more. Now, it's hard to measure short chain fatty acids because it's a moving target. They're being consumed by other microbes. They're being consumed by colonocytes in our gut. They're being absorbed for use by our muscles. There's a lot going on and you're trying to measure it in a stool sample. Um, they're working on a smart pill to measure these real time, which is going to be great. Um, but the bottom line is plant-based, they showed like a decrease in propionate, but an increase in butyrate over the animal-based diet. And then with the animal-based diet, they showed a big in increase in propionate and an increase in isobutyrate. I'm not sorry, not not uh, propionate. Uh, maybe propionate, but I know they uh, isovalorate and isobutyrate. So, in other words, you've got butyrate on the plant-based, 
and you've got isobutyrate when you've got more amino acids from the proteins on the animal base. So um, they're just different. And by the way, isobutyrate functions the same as butyrate for nourishing um, colonocytes. In fact, keto, ketones from the blood on somebody on a ketogenic diet can also nourish these colonocytes. So this idea of us, us stopping the microbiota, I think is just, um, it's just plain wrong. Yeah. I, I don't think yeah. the stopping. In fact, when I mentioned other fermentable material in that example and how much fermentable material we're getting beyond fiber, I think, I really think that the problem with these people that have things like me, reflux, IBS, other conditions that are related, they're overfeeding their microbes by either overconsumption or poor digestion. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I, that is such a cool point to make. I, we confuse diversity in the gut with diversity in our diet all the time. And I think it's amazing that humans have like backup systems and we can eat all kinds of different stuff. We can have a diverse diet, but that doesn't mean that we always should, in my opinion. I mean, I, I don't see a cheetah looking over a menu and one day he's going to have the gazelle and the next day he's going to have a gopher or whatever. Like they pretty much, most animals pretty much eat the same things all the time and they seem like they're doing just fine. Yeah. It would make more sense. These microbes react to what they're given in the circumstances. Um, there was a study by Marlene Riemle, a researcher out of Austria, maybe five or six years ago now. Um, but she tried something. She fasted people for a week and she looked at the microbiome. And what she found was an increase in diversity, particularly of the types of bacteria that live on the mucosa lining and probably are accessing strains that access the mucins that comprise mucus, right? That's the gel that protects the lining of the intestines. But it's more than that. It's also a complex food source. All of these different glycans, glycans molecules, fucose and uh, N-acetyl glucosamine and three or four others, they're locked together in these really kind of interesting bonds. And so this mucus, people don't realize it's 80% polysaccharide. So it's mostly carb. And the bacteria in our gut, like Acromensa mucinophila, Faecalibacterium prausnitzii, Bacteroides theta iota omicron, all these different microbes that kind of live on uh, near this lining have the lock and key, the lock, the key to the lock. They have enzymes that can access the carbs in these complex mucin molecules, feed themselves and cross feed the other microbes. So in other words, there's a mechanism in place almost, you could think of it almost the same way as, as you think about the liver supplying your glucose when you're on a ketogenic diet. Mm. gluconeogenesis, and you can break down fats, and you can make the glucose you need from your liver. The same way your gut makes these complex polysaccharides, by the way, many of them uh, um, uh, have uh, the sulfated, they have nitrogen groups. So what am I saying? It's not just carbohydrate. It's a complete fuel source for these microbes. Mm. So um, so this idea of starving the microbes, I just don't buy it. I, I don't think it's a real issue. There was a, you know, some of this work in mice, they were talking about, well, mice on an elemental diet, you'll get mucosal thinning and eventually you'll get the leaky gut and LPS will get out of, you know, that's in mice. They did a very similar study in humans on an elemental diet and did not see this mucosal thinning. Mm. You can't just always assume that whatever was shown in mice is going to be the case in humans. 
That is very well explained. I'm really curious about this one. I'm starting to see this more and more, including a loved one near me that is experiencing diverticulitis. And mm. the um, I'm really curious. The, the, the explanation that I've heard about this over the years just always seems to be very inconsistent and change. In the you know first flare up, you know several years ago was like okay, it's caused by tomato seeds, so don't eat tomatoes. And then it was like, well, this is caused by red meat. And then it was too much fiber. And then it was not enough fiber. And then you know now I've heard the doctor telling this person like, well, the cause is mostly just like genetic, and some people just get it, and some people don't. And now he's going in for a very invasive surgery where part of his large intestine is going to be cut out. And so really curious to hear, um, you know. What what is diverticulitis? As in your opinion, what causes it, and what can be ways to get rid of it or treat it? Mm. Yeah, and, and I I do feel bad for people that have um, complicated diverticulitis because it can be uh, quite painful. Um, you know, especially a lot of people have uh, significant pain on the left side. Um, That's right. And some Asians have pain on the right side too, for some reason. Oh, interesting. But these dive these diverticula, these pouches, they can form in, in other places in the digestive tract. They tend to be mostly in the large bowel, but you can get some in the small intestine as well. So what, what are these, right? They're, they're like pouches and, uh, uh, and they tend to form as we get older. So you don't see this in people under 40, but by the time you reach 60, and I have, <laughs> um, you about half or more people have these diverticula. So, that, so they have what they call diverticulosis. They're not inflamed. They don't have symptoms. But on a colonoscopy, they'll see they have these pouches. And so what are they? Well, first of all, you can imagine the digestive tract has muscles covering the whole thing. And that's what really propels food down your esophagus. It, it, it controls the churning in your stomach. And it, it, they surround your intestines moving you know, they're responsible for motility, moving food and, and, and microbes along your entire digestive tract. Now, as we get older, um, there may be a little bit of, I guess you'd call it atrophy of these muscles, and you get some weak spots. And so imagine taking a, a balloon that's underinflated and then squeezing it in your hand. And what are you going to see? You're going to see these little bubbles come up between your fingers, right? And that's what diverticular, that's what's going on there. And they can be the size of a pea or a bean, or they can be the size of a marble. They can be larger. And um, the problem is, and, and this is where, you know, we talk about the difference between diverticulosis, which is a somewhat benign condition, typically asymptomatic, moving to diverticulitis. Um, luckily for most people, the incidence of this conversion is relatively low. They used to think about 20 or 25% of people with diverticulosis would, have, would eventually get diverticulitis. Now, it's uh, newer, additional research has shown that really um, diverticulitis only occurs about 2 to 5% of the time. Um, and, and I agree with you. Some of the things that they were like, oh, watch out for this and that. A lot of these things are just kind of ideas that somebody came up with and somehow they turned into dogma. But there is some data that shows that red meat, nuts, seeds, popcorn, uh, high fiber isn't really a factor, a driving factor. Um, and that constipation, even though it, 
Uh, there might be a correlation of constipation with diverticulitis. It, it doesn't really seem to be a driving factor either. Um, but what do we know about it? Um, well, there do seem to be bacteria, gut bacteria in, evolved. Um, and because they do a lot of surgery on these and they poke around and see, you know, culture or uh, use um, RNA uh, PCR technology to see what those microbes are, microbes are. And they do tend to see uh, kind of a polymicrobial mix of the gut, of the gut bacteria in there. But um, time and time again, things like E. coli and bacteroides come up that are being recovered. These are um, both anaerobes, like the bacteroides, and E. coli is kind of a facultative anaerobe. It can survive in the presence of more oxygen. Maybe that's why it can live there. It's getting some oxygen from outside the, the blood uh, passing nearby outside of the intestines. So um, there's a little bit more air, so these E. coli can thrive. But the the microbes are living in these pouches, but they're going along the business, right? They're fermenting mostly carbohydrates and it's becoming inflammatory. So that's where the problem is. It, it's these microbes, but it's, it's an inflammatory situation. Mm. And, um, you know, this, I've been following some of these studies, uh, vitamin D may be helpful. There has, uh, at least one study, I, I need to look at that again, but uh, vitamin D has been proposed as even having a possible role in the etiology of diverticulitis. So when, when, you, when you hear that, you think, oh, perhaps more important, vitamin D deficiency might be a possible cause or contributing cause of diverticulitis. What else? Uh, there, there has been a couple of studies. They need more, but the, the I, th I think I mentioned earlier to you before we're um, on the call about a study with 85 patients that were given the anti-inflammatory mesalazine with or without Lactobacillus casei strain DG, a very specific strain, probiotic strain. And it was interesting that just with one of those or the placebo, they had a placebo group. So they had about 30 people in each group. They had about 85 patients or so. Um, and just either the, the probiotic or the mesalazine alone or with placebo, after one year, um, several of the people in, the, in these groups um, fell out of remission and got diverticulitis again, right? You know, that that's the game is staying in remission as long as you possibly can with diverticulitis. Mm. But so far in this one study, and I think they've done two to tell you the truth, but in one that I'm, I'm, I'm re recalling, um, out of the 85 patients, 29 of them were on both the mesalazine and the uh, lactobacillus KCIDG. And after 12 months, 29 of 29 remained in remission. Wow. So it's encouraging. Wow. That's so super interesting. Thank you for that information. That's great. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the fast track diet and you made it a priority to keep it drug and antibiotic free. And I'm curious as to why you decided that that would be the priority. Hmm. Well, you know, honestly, I, I, I worked on the development of, of antibiotics for about 10 years. I, I studied them when I was at Tufts. I studied them when I worked at Bayer. Uh, I worked on the development of ciprofloxacin, right? It's a life-saving drug for people that have um, serious infections. 
but it also has side effects and risks, like a lot of these antibiotics. Um, some of those that are not systemically absorbed, like rifaximin, um, probably less of a problem because they don't, they're not getting out of the digestive tract. Um, but I still think all antibiotics will carry uh, some level of resistance risk that, that when you're exposing all your microbes to these antibiotics, some will become tolerant or resistant. And we don't want that. We want to reserve these antibiotics for more serious conditions. So when I see a lot of antibiotics be, being used for functional GI issues, I feel like they're taking a third or fourth tier intervention, something that in my own consulting practice as a consulting microbiologist, I wouldn't even think about these systemic antibiotics or even the ant the herbal antimicrobials. There's not that much known about them. There's not many studies. There's not that much known about long-term use of these. Um, I, I want to try the three things that underlie the fast-track diet, the fast-track diet mobile app, and my consulting practice has to do with diet and digestion. It's just so key because we talked about that. If you're over-consuming or if you're not digesting well, you're overfeeding your microbes. And you've got to work on that. What's the problem? Is it brush border, stomach acid? Uh, is it pancreatic enzymes? Is it something else? Is it, is it your immune system? So you need to work on, on diet and digestion. The underlying cause piece, I mean, just can't be understated. And we talked about these, right? Anything that can impact the microbiome, digestion, motility, or immunity. And there's 25 or 30 of these and when I work with clients, I'm really trying very hard to rule as many of those out as I can. So we're working on something that matters and not something that's just superfluous, spinning our wheels, so to speak, underlying cost piece. And then the other piece we haven't talked about as much, and, and that is what I call pro-digestion uh, behaviors and practices. You know, it's not just what you're eating, that's important, but it's also when you're eating. Are you using meal spacing? Do you ever do any fasting? Um, how do you prepare your foods? If they're starches, are you adding enough water and cooking them properly so that they're well hydrated and kind of light and fluffy? They're easier to digest that way. Um, and by the way, we, we haven't talked about types of starches, but amylopectin starch, right? And sushi rice is 100% amylopectin starch is very much easier to digest than amylose, the linear starch. And you find more of that in basmati rice and Uncle Ben's rice. And the potatoes have the same thing, different ratios of these starches. So the, the amylose is more of a resistant starch, more difficult to digest. Um, and then also for the starches, how you, are you refrigerating them and then eating leftovers? Because you build up more resistant starch, more like a fiber when you refrigerate them. So there's a lot of behaviors and practices. And then you can also get into supplementing uh, your diet in such a way to improve digestion. So I feel like those three areas are so much more important. And only if somebody really fails to resolve all the symptoms um, with that approach, and, and oftentimes it's a compliance issue, by the way, <laughs> but then we can start to think about, okay, what else do we need to do in your case? Uh, you're a dedicated vegan, but what can we do that you're going to stay on this type of diet, but what can we do anyway? And that's when things like uh, antimicrobial herbs can come into play. And it also depends on what's going on with the microbes, right? 
We haven't really talked about testing, but there's uh, breath testing that you can look at the gases these microbes are making, methane, hydrogen, and now there's a test for hydrogen sulfide as well. So you can see what the gas mix is. That's a telltale of what these microbes are doing and, and where they're doing it. Is it early in your small intestine? Is it in your large intestine? And then probably my favorite type of testing of all, <laughs> because I'm a microbiologist, I suppose, but it's comprehensive stool testing. And, and there's a number of companies that do this, And uh, uh, but pick a good one. And I have my my favorites, but uh, they look, they, first of all, they'll screen for a whole variety of pathogens, bacterial, fungi, protozoan, uh, viruses. They will look at your commensal populations, you know, all of these different groups, the Firmicutes, the Bacteridetes, the Proteobacteria, the Actinobacteria, the Methanogens, and then fungi and protozoa. And they'll compare your commensal populations, not necessarily pathogens, but they'll compare those to kind of the consensus. Now, everybody's microbiome is different, so you have to consider that as well. But when you see somebody that's like completely deficient in one of those microbes we talked about, Acomensum mucinophila, that processes this mucin and cross-feeds the other bacteria, it's associated with health and leanness and gut barrier, integrity. If you see somebody that's completely deficient in that, it's like, okay, wow, you know, what's going on here? Or uh, they have uh, no Faecalibacterium prosnitzii, a butyrate producer that's anti-inflammatory. Um, you might say, okay, well, we better at least check calprotectin, a marker of inflammation, because having very low Faecalibacterium prosnitzii is one of the signs of inflammatory bowel disease. So you can look at and, and in the same stool test, you can see this calprotectin. That's a, a protein that neutrophils release at a site of inflammation. So you have a lot of calprotectin. You have a very inflammatory state in your gut. Um, and if you have too much, you know, somebody with IBS could maybe have 100 or 150 uh, units of this calprotectin. Somebody with inflammatory bowel disease could have 2,000. So you see there's a big difference there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this type of testing if you get stuck, is very insightful and actionable as well. Wow, man, you you should see me like my my wrist hurts. <laughs> I am like writing all of these super fascinating topics that we could just unpack and unpack. And I'm just going to use this time right now to say, man, if would you if you would be willing to come back onto the show again so we can unpack some of that stuff, it is absolutely fascinating, and we could talk for hours. Oh yeah, Casey, I would, I would love to, I, I, I do enjoy talking about this stuff and, um, and, and really seeing what's the latest, what's the newest information. And, and, you know, part of my love for it be, is, is because I work with so many people that have these problems that I just make it my job. If I have somebody, um, with say pouchitis, right. That's a condition, uh, from like Crohn's disease where, Part of the, um, the with a large bowel, uh, I'm sorry, ulcerative colitis, where the large bowel was removed and they built a pouch out of the small intestine. And half of those people get along fine like that. And it's great. And they don't need a colostomy bag. It's all inside their body. But in half of the people, it gets very inflamed. And so when I get one of these, I don't always take on every case. But when I do take on a case, I really make it my job to learn everything about it. Wow. 
I, you can tell, you can tell just how lit up you get about this stuff and how educated you are and how willing you are to share the message. I love it. Um, I'm going, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I'm going to save the, um, prebiotic probiotic kind of supplementation thing for maybe next time. But I do want to give you an opportunity to talk about the performance probiotic that you mentioned earlier. That sounded really interesting. Mm. Well, it's a it, it's a fascinating story, and and because of your background, I thought you might you might like to. And I'll give you just kind of a snippet of it, and you can you can Google it later. Um, but there was a, a study of some guys at Harvard that they took a look at athletes that were running the Boston Marathon, and they were interested in how their microbiota might change from the beginning to the end of the race, and so they took some. Um, stool samples, and they started looking at them. And one microbe they um, focused in on was called Villanella atypica. And the reason they were focused on this, it's just fascinating science, uh, and, and they've got a patent application on this now. Um, what does this Villanella atypica do? So Villanella um, is a type of bacteria that lives in your intestines and it's hi- highly represented in your small intestine as well. Um, Villanella species in general. But unlike a lot of bacteria that break down carbohydrates, as I mentioned, or amino acids or fats for energy, they feed exclusively on lactate or lactic acid oh, wow. that other, other bacteria produce, right? All of these lactic acid bacteria. And, and we talked about one for the, um, you know, possible supplement for, um, for the diverticulitis, right? But there's many of these lactic acid bacteria. When you, when you consume lacto-fermented vegetables, you're getting a whole ton of them. And they produce lactic acid. And so these villanella are right there to pounce on the lactic acid. And they use the lactic acid and produce the short-chain fatty acid propionate. And that propionate can be used by us humans to burn in our muscles. So why, what's, what does this have to do with these performance athletes, these marathon runners? Well, what do these marathon runners do when they really push it, right? They get to the point where their muscles um, are just out of, um, uh, they, they can no longer use, they, they don't have enough oxygen to use aerobic respiration, right? And so their muscles start using fermentation. And when you ferment glucose, instead of getting, you know, the carbon dioxide typical end products of respiration, you get lactic acid. And the lactic acid burns, builds up in your muscles, right? And your body's also trying to get rid of it and process it. Some goes into your bloodstream, some goes to your liver, but it also turns out this lactic acid is absorbed into your intestines. And so this bacteria can use that lactic acid just like it can from the lactic acid bacteria. And so the marathon runners, they um, surmised their lactic acid building up in the muscles is being used by this villanella. It's putting out the propionate and and the athletes are getting a little boost from that. That's what they hypothesized. And so they isolated this microbe, villanella atypica, this particular strain, and they used it to do a fecal microbiota transfer into mice. And lo and behold, they ran 13% longer on the treadmill. Wow. So they're trying to come up with a, with a, you know, a probiotic um, that you can take for, to improve your performance. 
So stay tuned on that one. That is incredible. <laughs> that Nuts, is incredible. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. <laughs> Man, I'm so glad you brought that up. That I have so many other questions <laughs> about that. That's so cool. <laughs> Oh, um, man, I, I would love for you to take a minute and tell um, the listener one more time some of the ways that you work with people. You have a lot of really helpful tools, including the app, the diet, the, your website's amazing, lots of great recipes, um, consulting with people. How do you work with people these days? Yeah, well, I have people. Um, first of all, I do a pre-consult with people, and that's free. I'll, I'll talk to people for about 15 or 20 minutes and see what's up and see if it's something I feel like I can be helpful with. And so um, I don't take on that many because um, I, I actually spend most of my time writing up written recommendations for people. So for every hour I'm on a call, um, I'll be working on that person's stuff for about three hours to get a set of notes. So, wow. um, but when I take people into the program, they fill out a three-page questionnaire in addition to the notes that I've been taking when I, when I talk to them, it gives me a lot of information. I want to kind of hit the ground running. When I first uh, talk to them, we get a, we use zoom most of the time, which is just great. You can see each other. And, um, and so I'll usually take a bit of a deep dive, uh, typical to have an hour session with people, sometimes an hour and a half or an hour and 15 minutes. And then, uh, offline, I'll, I'll spend a lot of time digging in. What, what do they do? What have they tried? what's unusual, what, what might work, and then put together a plan, typically five to eight pages of, of, of written recommendations. I'll send them a day or two after the session. I also include a diet and symptoms log if people uh, have booked kind of a program or multiple um, sessions. You can do one, and I'll get you the report. But if you do two or three, it, it's helpful because the diet and symptom log, I ask people to keep that for um, at least two weeks prior to the second and third session and send it to me the night before so I can spend some time with it because I really look at those logs in, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, so I find that's helpful, but um, yeah, I focus on those three areas, diet and digestion, underlying cause analysis, uh, pro-absorption behaviors and practices uh, along with very um, targeted approach with dietary supplements. Most of them are aimed at improving digestion, but not always. Um, and so, yeah, I try to make it a pretty comprehensive thing that, uh, you know, I, I, that what I believe about this approach is that it is a durable a way to have a durable response. You can take a bunch of antibiotics or herbs and you'll feel, you know, you might feel good for a month or two. But if you don't do anything that's driving it, what, what was wrong to begin with? If you don't do anything or understand it or change anything, you'll be back to square one. So I do feel like this approach uh, you know, provides a durable response. Mm, it sounds incredible. I mean, you're not selling people packages of 24 or 36 sessions that they have to work with you forever, yet there is some follow-up that needs to be done. That sounds amazing, giving people just what they need and hopefully healing them so they can go about their lives and do other things. It's, it's wonderful. Man, this has been an amazing conversation. I've learned a ton. I've got this list here, cooking food, starches and vegetables, resistant starch, um, <laughs> all of these things are really immunity. I would love to deep dive with you um, sometime again soon. It was so fascinating. You have a great way of educating me and the listener. What is one thing, one simple thing you'd like to leave with the listener to walk away with this conversation from? If, if you don't take anything away from this besides this one sentence, I would say maybe two sentences. Less is more, 
That's one. We're overfeeding our microbes, not underfeeding. Less is more, less is more. Some fasting, some meal spacing, fewer carbs. Um, and then the other one is, you know, you can, you can probably learn this from your grandmother as well. Eat slowly and chew really, really well. Mm. Man, that is great advice. I would learn that from my grandma for sure. Uh, Dr. Norm, tell um, the listener one more time where they can go to find you, to find your work, connect with your work. Yeah, so if you want to uh, find the books, the mobile app, read some blogs, uh, other information we post, you can go to our website, which is digestivehealthinstitute.org. Um, another place to connect with people that use the fast track diet. Um, we have about 11,500 or so people on our fast tracked, T-R-A-C-T, fast tracked diet official Facebook group. So, and this, you know, you can then in all these posts, we've been, we've had that page up for years and all of these posts, there's tons of them and they're searchable. So um, if you go on that Facebook page, you'll connect with a lot of people that are. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I again, I have to just say your website is really well done, and there's so many different resources out there in different formats that people can find. We will link to all of that in the show note. Show notes, uh, Dr. Norm Rubelard. What an amazing conversation! Thank you so much for all that you've done and all your work with a fast track diet, um, and and helping us all understand digestion better. We love and appreciate the attention to detail and all the all the studying and, and learning that you've done to come to the conclusions that you have. So thank you so much for you and all of your work and for appearing on our show today. We are really honored to host you. I, I appreciate that, Casey. And congratulations to you with your practice and your podcast. Um, also excellent. I've, I've listened to a number of them. Oh, well, thank you very much. It means a lot, especially coming from you. Um, we've been fortunate enough to host a lot of really great guests and you were no exception. We look forward to hosting you again soon. We've got a lot to talk about still. <laughs> excellent. Awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.